This is the Music History In-Depth Podcast for January 15th through the 21st. On this week's show, Disney creates a cultural phenomenon, jazz gets played at Carnegie Hall, an unknown country music singer wins a reality TV show, and the birds invent a whole new subgenre of rock music. This show goes more in-depth about some of the events that we put on our daily podcast, the Music History Today podcast, which drops every single day, including weekends, wherever you get your podcast from. Now, on to this week's episode. On January 20th, 2006, the Disney Channel released what it thought would be a relatively successful TV movie. They did their customary high-publicity marketing push with it. Ten days earlier, on January 10th, they had released the soundtrack for it. Now, they waited to see if all that marketing and planning actually worked. In the 2000s, the Disney Channel was a force among the teens and the teens. Shows like That's a Raven, Kim Possible, Hannah Montana, and many others gave it a lot of power with the kids' demographic. In 2002, Disney aired a musical episode of their show Even Steven, starring a then-unknown Shia LaBeouf fan, Christy Carlson Romano. They also did a musical episode of another show, That's So Raven, starring a post-Cosby show, Raven Simone. The reaction by the audience was so good that, Disney of course being Disney, they decided to milk the idea for everything it was worth, because Disney. This time, though, they decided to make a relatively big-budget musical TV movie, at least for that time period. They got a bunch of good-looking youngsters who could sing and dance, as is the usual for anybody in the Disney stable of stars. At that time, the only one who had any face recognition was Ashley Tisdale, who was a co-star on their show, The Sweet Life with Zack and Cody, starring the Sprouse twins, Cole and Dylan. They got famed director and choreographer Kenny Ortega to direct and choreograph the movie. Screenplay duties went to Peter Barsocini, and they filmed it in Salt Lake City, Utah, using East High School and Murray High School in Salt Lake for their school locations. The movie, High School Musical, was unleashed upon the world with the premiere on January 20th, 2006, and it premiered to critical applause and acclaim. Actually, uh, no, it, it got trashed by the critics. It actually scored 5.7 out of 10 and a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. What'd you expect? It was a Disney movie. It was based on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, but that really it wasn't meant to be taken as seriously as Shakespeare. Critic David Nusser said, quote, it's difficult to imagine even the most die-hard fan of musicals finding anything here worth embracing. End quote. That's my snobbish musical critic's voice. Another critic, Scott Weinberg, said that it was, quote, a schmaltzy little piece of obvious fluff 
that's directed in truly horrendous fashion and populated by cardboard characters who spit out simplistic platitudes and breathy pop-tunes. End quote. Wow, that's a mouthful. Didn't matter what the critics said, though. The kids ate it up, and boy, did they ever. With 225 million viewers worldwide, it became the largest viewership on the Disney Channel that year until Cheetah Girls 2 came out. I'm sure the critics love that as much as well. The cultural impact of High School Musical was immense. The kids in the movie became stars overnight. The soundtrack to it was the biggest selling record that year, beating out Justin Timberlake, Nelly Furtado, and Fall Out Boy. It spawned the careers of Zac Efron, Vanessa Hutchins, among others, along with the aforementioned Ashley Tisdale. It also spawned two sequels, a touring concert, a DVD sing-along version of the movie, at least three international versions, a stage musical version, an ice tour, a book series, video games, even a reality series based on putting on a stage version of the musical of the movie. Phew. Say what you will about Disney, but they sure know how to market the hell out of something. It also created interest in musicals again and helped pave the way for musicals to be put back on television, like the live versions of Peter Pan and Grease, and of course the TV show Glee. The Frozen, Titanic, Barbie, Heimer, cultural phenomenon of its day, High School Musical, premiered on the Disney Channel on January 20th, 2006. Next, every four years on the first Tuesday in November, America goes through a time-honored tradition. We call it a presidential election. As is usually the case, that's followed the following January 20th by another time-honored tradition, America celebrating the fact that we survived a presidential election, better known as a presidential inauguration. And while both of these traditions are on shaky ground as we speak... At least there's a history of both musical star power and drama at these things. For instance, in 1969, James Brown performed at Richard Nixon's inauguration ball, which really did not sit well with members of the African-American community. In 1985, opera star Jesse Norman performed at President Ronald Reagan's inauguration, In 1993, Melissa Etheridge, Katie Lang, and Janice Ian all publicly came out as being gay during President Bill Clinton's inauguration ball, the Triangle Ball, which was the first inauguration ball that was held for the LGBTQ community. In 2009, both Kid Rock and Kanye West performed at one of President Barack Obama's inauguration balls, the MTV Youth Ball. Both Kid Rock and Kanye later became, of course, outspoken supporters of President Donald Trump in 2016. In 2009, at a different inauguration ball for Obama, Beyonce performed the song At Last for the first dance song for President Obama and his wife Michelle. The artist who made that song popular, Etta James, was reportedly angry that Beyonce was chosen to sing the song and not, I guess, Etta herself. 
In 2021, Garth Brooks, Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, Bruce Springsteen, Tim McGraw, John Legend, Katy Perry, and Demi Lovato all performed at President Joe Biden's inauguration and concert two weeks after the January 6th insurrection on the U.S. Capitol building and in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. There was something else that had to do with politics and music that happened that particular day as well. On January 20th, 2021, rapper Lil Wayne was pardoned by outgoing President Donald Trump that morning before he left the White House after Lil Wayne had visited Trump and tweeted his support for Trump during the election controversy. I guess he got his pardon the old-fashioned way by appealing to the former president's ego. The musical pageantry and shenanigans that come with the presidential inaugurations and concert events every four years on January 20th, hopefully for a while. We'll see. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcasts. The Music History Today podcast goes over the daily events in music history and drops daily, including weekends, on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. There's also the Music Halls of Fame podcast, which talks about a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with other Music Halls of Fame's museums and walks of fame. The Music Halls of Fame podcast drops every Thursday and can also be found on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to this podcast. In a lot of big cities of the world, there are certain concert venues that are considered highbrow, for lack of a better phrase. Maybe stuck up is actually a better way of putting it. These are places where your normal garage band wouldn't be caught dead in. Hell, you almost feel like you have to get dressed up in a Brooks Brothers suit just to walk by the places. These places usually have ballet companies and classical music played in them. New York City has more than its fair share of them. Lincoln Center with the Metropolitan Opera House and Carnegie Hall, to for starters. Carnegie Hall once was the main concert place for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. It's a pretty prestigious place for a musician to play, actually. The old joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Yeah, that still rings true. It's a nice little feather in the cap and a bucket list item for true musicians and artists everywhere. It has since opened its doors to other types of music, and this next event actually helped to jumpstart that. Back in the early part of the 20th century, jazz was not taken seriously in mainstream America. Looked at as black people's music the same way that rock and roll was looked at in the mid-20th century before Elvis broke through to the mainstream, jazz developed a following but was not looked at in the same vein as classical music and standards even. It took swing music and its Pied Piper, Benny Goodman, to help begin to change people's opinions about that. In 1938, Benny Goodman and swing music were at the height of their power. Goodman was selling out concert halls all over America. He was a film and radio star. And one day, his publicist came to him with an idea. How about the band play Carnegie Hall? 
At first, Goodman laughed at the idea. It was kind of like Justin Bieber playing at the Metropolitan Opera House, even to this day. Then, Goodman started to talk himself into doing the show. He had not only his band, but also members of the Count Basie and Duke Ellington orchestras to play at this concert. Top ticket prices went for $2.75, which was a lot of money back in the day, especially with the Great Depression still going around and the steady drumbeats of World War II coming ever so much closer to American shores. The concert itself was a smash, and although no one thought that it was recorded, it actually was. In fact, you can find the concert on CD and on certain streaming services. What is now ironic is that jazz, once considered the bastard stepchild of quote real unquote music, is now itself considered highbrow in many circles, including at my old college, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Massachusetts, where that snobbish little point was drilled into me on the regular while I was studying music education there back in the 1980s, when the message was that classical and jazz were the only true music art forms and everything else wasn't even real music. Six years later, by the way, Benny Goodman would break down that jazz barrier yet again in another place known for classical music, the New York Metropolitan Opera House, which held a jazz concert for the first time on January 18, 1944. This time around, Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday would join Benny on stage to perform at that concert. Benny Goodman breaking down the jazz barrier at Carnegie Hall in New York City on January 16, 1938, and again at the New York Metropolitan Opera House in New York City on January 18, 1944. Next, no one knew it at the time, but a young woman who was on television the night of January 21st, 1957, would go on to become a country music icon, and it took a reality TV show to do it. Back in the 1940s and 50s, Arthur Godfrey was the Dick Clark, or in this day and age, Ryan Seacrest of television. He had a bunch of shows, both on radio and television, and was a household name. One of his shows was called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, where amateur entertainers would get their big break. It was, in essence, a contest show. People would go on, do their performances, and the audience would pick the winner. Think of it as American Idol before there was such a thing. In order to be on the show, you had to first audition. Some people who were actually deemed not worthy to be on the show after their auditions were Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley. Go figure. That does not, however, detract from the show's track record. Their list of soon-to-be stars who got their start on the show includes Tony Bennett, Pat Boone, comedian Lenny Bruce, and Marilyn Horn. On January 21, 1957, a young woman from Winchester, Virginia, went on the show and performed the song Walking After Midnight. She ended up winning the contest that night, and that was when the world first heard of Patsy Cline. 
Patsy would go on to have many hits from 1957 to 1963, although the meat of her career would be after 1960. Her voice would be an inspiration for many, many singers, including Reba McIntyre and Leanne Rimes. She's on Rolling Stone magazine's list of 100 greatest singers and is a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, Patsy was tragically killed in a plane crash in 1963. She remains an icon to this very day, but she first made a name for herself by winning Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts TV contest on January 21st, 1957. The group The Birds was formed in 1964. The original group lineup was Roger McGuinn, David Crosby, Gene Clark, Chris Hillman, and Michael Clark. McGuinn, Crosby, and Gene Clark all came up doing the folk music coffee shop circuits. And while the three of them loved folk music, they were, like everybody else at the time, influenced by the rock music that was coming out of England. The three of them recruited Hillman and Michael Clark to complete their group. And what the birds wanted to do was to combine folk music with rock music and to bring in vocal harmonics to boot. While Bob Dylan was considered the king of folk music at that time, the birds brought folk music to the mainstream by doing this, along with also having McGuinn's signature Rickenbacker 360-12 string guitar, and the Birds became one of the most influential groups of the 1960s. In 1964, the group was signed to Columbia Records. In January 1965, they entered Columbia Recording Studios in Hollywood to start work on their debut album. On June 21, 1965, they released that debut album called Mr. Tambourine Man, which included, of course, a cover of Bob Dylan's song of the same name. The band got a copy of Dylan's song from Dylan's publisher. They listened to it, but they weren't really all that impressed with it. Roger McGuinn decided to play around with it a little. He changed the time signature from a 2-4 time to 4-4 time. He also decided to get the song away from its folk roots and give it more of a Beatles rock band feel, if you will. He didn't know it at the time, but by doing that, he had just invented the folk rock music subgenre. When they recorded the song, Mr. Tambourine Man, on January 20th, 1965 at Columbia Studios, their producer, Terry Melcher, didn't think that the group worked well as musicians together. Not quite yet, at least. So Terry kept Roger McGuinn's guitar playing and brought in Hall of Fame session musicians, the Wrecking Crew, to play on the songs Mr. Tambourine Man and the tracks B-Side, I Knew I'd Want You, making McGuinn the only original Birds member to play an instrument on both tracks. Ironically, it was the Birds version of Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man that was the bellwether song to the folk mainstream revolution. Dylan's version was released as part of his Bringing It All Home album in March of 1965. One month later, with Dylan's blessing after he had heard their version and liked it, 
The Birds released their cover version of the song with McGuinn doing lead vocal duties. The Birds' version became a huge hit, hitting number one in America, Great Britain, South Africa, and Ireland. It also became Dylan's first song to hit number one, although he didn't actually sing on this particular version. The Birds' version is now considered not just the start of folk music's popularity in the mainstream, but also one of the greatest singles of all time, and the album Mr. Tambourine Man is considered one of the biggest and most important moments in pop music history. The Birds' second album, Turn, 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 was recorded in June to November of 1965 and was released on December 6, 1965. The album continued the group's innovative folk rock style and went to number 17 on the American Albums chart. The song, Turn, 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 also became a huge hit, going to number one in America. Their third album, The Fifth Dimension, was recorded from January to May 1966 and was released on July 18, 1966. It took the group into a new direction, moving them into psychedelic rock, especially with their 1966 song, Eight Miles High. By 1967, the usual band tension started to rear their ugly heads, and Gene Clark left the group due to anxiety issues, along with a really bad case of stage fright at that time. After their fourth album, 1967's Younger Than Yesterday, Michael Clark and David Crosby wore out their welcome with Roger McGuinn and were bounced out of the Birds in 1967. After a couple more albums, the Birds helped to pioneer country rock with their 1968 album Sweetheart of the Rodeo with songs like You Ain't Going Nowhere. Graham Parsons had actually joined the group by that point and was extremely influential with the recording of that particular album, which was recorded in Nashville and Hollywood between March and May of 1968. When it was released on August 30th, 1968, the reviews were mixed at best with some critics who didn't actually like the blending of country and rock music. It also didn't do well on the charts, only getting as high as number 77 in America and not even charting overseas. However, it is credited as not only pioneering country rock, but also influencing a lot of future groups like the Eagles. Right around the release of Sweethearts of the Rodeo, Graham Parsons left the Birds due to his opposition to the apartheid regime of South Africa, where the Birds were slated to play. According to some people, though, Graham actually used it as an excuse to quit the band so he could go and hang with Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones, who had become his fast friends at that time. Chris Hillman left the Birds in 1968 as well. The group continued on with McGuinn helming a new version of the Birds until 1973, which was released on March 7, well, the group broke up. McGuinn got together with Gene Clark and Chris Hillman from 1977 to 1981. Clark then got together a new version of the group from 1989 to 1991, but was sued by the original members of the group, who wanted to do a reunion of their own with the name The Birds attached to their group. When the Birds were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991, the original five members showed up to accept and to also perform. 
It would be their last performance together as the full original lineup. The main thread during the group's 1964-73 run was Roger McGuinn, who was there throughout all of the versions of the 1964-1973 group. Gene Clark, who actually won the right to use the Birds' name in that aforementioned lawsuit, was there on and off from 1964-67 to and again from 72-73 to and passed away from heart issues a few months after their Hall of Fame performance in 1964. 1991. Michael Clark was there on and off from 64 to 67 and 72 to 73 and passed away from liver issues in 1993. David Crosby was there from 64 to 67 and again 72 to 73 and he ended up passing away in 2023 from COVID-19 complications. Crosby, of course, would leave the group and become part of the Crosby, Stills, and Nash group who were themselves inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997. And then they added Neil Young to become Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, or CSNY. This leaves McGuinn and Hillman, at least as of this recording, as the only original members who are still alive. Out of the group's replacement members during the 64-73 creative period, Graham Parsons, Kevin Kelly, Clarence White, and Skip Batten all have passed away. Kevin Kelly was there in 68 and passed away from natural causes in 2002. Clarence White was there from 68-73 to and was struck and killed by a drunk driver in 73. Skip Batten was there from 70-73 to and passed away in 2003 from Alzheimer's disease. Graham Parsons was there for a hot minute for one album in 1968, for the Sweethearts album exactly, and then he quit, as we said earlier. He ended up passing away in 1973 from a drug and alcohol overdose and then had his body famously kidnapped out to Joshua Tree National Forest in California by his road manager and his assistant at the time. Then his body was set on fire in a Viking funeral. What was left of his body was eventually buried in New Orleans. The entire theft of the body has its own story and is worthy of its own podcast someday, and I'm sure we'll get to it. But if you want to watch a movie about it in the meantime, check out 2003's Grand Theft Parsons, which starred Johnny Knoxville, Christina Applegate, Robert Forster, and Michael Shannon. Gene Parsons, who was there from 68 to 72, and John York, who was there from 68 to 69, are still, as of right now at least, alive. The Birds put out 12 albums, 3 live albums, 6 EPs, and 47 compilation albums. Of those, 9 of their albums went top 40 in America, with their 1967 Greatest Hits album hitting number 6. They also released 29 singles. Of those, seven hit the top 40 with 1965's Turn, Turn, Turn and Mr. Tambourine Man both hitting number one. They were nominated for seven Grammy Awards, winning three of them, including Best New Artist in 1965. Their harmonic style, along with their sound, are still a part of music today, influencing everybody from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers to R.E.M. to the Eagles to the Smiths. And it all started with their groundbreaking cover of a Bob Dylan folk song that turned music on its head in the 1960s and created a whole new subgenre of rock. 
the Birds' version of Bob Dylan's song, Mr. Tambourine Man, one of the most important songs in rock music history, was recorded on January 20th, 1965. And that is it for the Music History In-Depth podcast for January 15th through the 21st. Thanks for listening. 